Take a network break. We're in the August doldrum, so it's a light news week. We've got stories on an extreme acquisition, a YLAN market forecast, a tough financial quarter for Huawei, and some space networking conversation. This week's show is sponsored in part by Nokia. Did you know that Apple is using Nokia's data center fabric solution? If you want to know more and learn about Nokia SR Linux and fabric services platform for yourself, check out nokia.com slash networks slash DC dot fabric. And we'll tell you a little bit more about that in the middle of the show. Stay tuned after the news. We have a Tech Bytes podcast where we look at how stateful firewalls and other devices are vulnerable to DDoS due to TCP state exhaustion attacks. Our sponsor is NetScout, and we're going to walk through how the attack works what could be done to mitigate it. And if you like Network Break, we've got other podcasts in our network, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, and Full Stack Journey. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversation about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net. All right, before we get to the news, we got a little bit of FU, some follow-up. First, uh, we talked last week about Juniper announcing a new application-based security agent that looks at processes running in the application and decides which are good, which are bad. It can block the bad ones. And somebody wrote in to say this sounds like something that they, uh, one of their college professors worked on when they were in college. Yeah, I think, the per- I think what uh, James is saying in his feedback is basically what it boils down to is it's a fair amount of obvious uh, the idea that you put an agent in the server and then you can to watch what's actually happening in the operating system. And it's something that university students and people with degrees can do. Um, it's, it's sort of, I want to say it's kind of obvious, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I could see that in that, you know, in a university, in a lab, if you're learning applications, yes, when you're doing it in production with complex apps and you could potentially kill a legitimate transaction, that's when the stakes go up. Yeah. So, you know, putting an agent on the server uh, is one of those things where you sort of say to yourself, this is the obvious solution, but we haven't been able to make it work, largely because operating systems have been unstable and unpredictable, particularly Microsoft Windows. And the idea of some sort of agent on the server has something that's been tried on and off for 20 years, 30 years even, with little success. But we've sort of got to the point now where Linux is actually quite stable. The kernel seems to be quite stable. Their ability to integrate them has been pretty useful. So, you know, it's been an interesting sort of a time in that sense. Yeah, and sticking with this Juniper Cloud Workload Protection story, uh, somebody wrote in to tell us, uh, hey, we, we you talked about Juniper Cloud Workload Protection. You didn't mention that it's actually OEM'd uh, from another company called K2.io. Uh, Juniper didn't mention that when I spoke to them. It's not in any of the materials that I read. So I did reach out to Juniper to follow up, and they said, oh, yeah, by the way, yes, it is It is OEM'd from this K2.io. Yeah, and, and that's an interesting part, too, is that what Juniper had put together in terms of saying we've got this thing and then OEMing it from someone else. And you know my opinion, Drew, when they start borrowing technology or reselling technology from somewhere else, um, it really comes down to, uh, you know, if you want to put a thing, put a ring on it sort of thing. I don't believe right, that when an established right. vendor, you know, measuring their revenue in terms of billions says, oh, we're going to resell somewhere else's technology. I don't, it doesn't feel right in the current era. Um uh, you know, unless they're sort of sucking it to see, you know, are they dating before they decide to go, you know, go on to a permanent commitment? That's know? what I wondered. Yeah, because you and I had talked about the fact that this seemed like kind of an odd uh, product for Juniper to release and to invest development dollars in. And now this makes more sense that they had some relationship with this company before because they were doing an integration with uh, this technology with the Juniper firewalls. And then they decided, hey, let's OEM it and, you know, make it look like ours and you get support from Juniper. And maybe it is kind of a, let, let's date a little while and see if we want to make this a, a marriage. Yeah, that's pretty much right. And I mean, there is a long-term partnership here. Apparently K2 has actually been working with Juniper on some other integrations. Um, 
dating back to the Juniper SRX Firewall family, um, that, you know, so maybe there's some sort of established relationship that might actually work sustainably, but I'm all, you know, my personal experience of these and the feedback that I get from the field is when, you know, when the big vendors start reselling somebody else, there's a power asymmetry, there's an integration issue, maybe in the era where we're more software centric and more focused on those issues and less about just straight up, you know, box shifting, maybe, maybe it's different. I don't know. Be interested to hear how it works out anyway. Yeah, I want to keep an eye on this because I do think it is an interesting product. I think there is a market for it. Maybe it's Juniper saying, let's do a little experimentation on the appetite for this kind of thing. And if there is an appetite, maybe we'll do something more formal with K2 besides an OEM. We'll see. Yeah, we'll we'll see. It's just, it's one of those interesting things where putting agents on the server you know, service mesh has kind of popularized it to the extent that the network is now inside the container and they're now adding functions. But while there are people using service mesh and there's an awful lot of people who've, you know, spent too much career time, (laughs) if you like, um, (laughs) investing in service mesh. And so now they're all out there promoting it as the biggest thing ever because I did the same thing with IPv6 20 years ago. You know, I got all into IPv6 and I was all excited by it and, you know, all that sort And the reality, of course, was just a waste of time at the end and 20 years later it's all different you know all that technology i learned was a waste of time so the, the question here is is there smoke or is there fire is there something are customers using this and at this point we just don't know i suppose yeah that's that's the takeaway uh one last follow-up uh somebody wrote in to say if you're a cisco a cisco customer and you're submitting tag cases uh he recommends signing up for a webex account a cisco webex account and using that as part of your uh support toolkit because you can actually maybe get somebody from TAC on a WebEx call instead of just, you know, going back and forth over email or through the the web, the, the tax system. Yeah. So what he's highlighting here is that Cisco TAC people are allowed to use WebEx to communicate with customers. And he's saying that after you submit a TAC case, you can go in and change your preferred contact method to virtual spaces and it will create a, a WebEx chat room for your TAC case with the engineers. And it's much better than going backwards and forwards by email. So what Cisco is effectively saying is we could have actually done chat with anything, but we're only going to let you use WebEx because we want to force our, you know, our internal people to use WebEx (laughs) and given a chance, maybe they wouldn't, maybe they would. Um, But then if you're outside of the industry, you're going to be forced to use Cisco standards, not the standard that you want. So Cisco doesn't want to meet you. Now, I'm sensitive to the fact that, you know, not Cisco doesn't want to have to support Slack and Discord and WhatsApp and whatever, but maybe they should. If they right. really want to connect to their customers, they should, instead of forcing me to go and use their tool. But he's, you know, as he says here, at this point in time, engaging with Cisco's tech is not seamless. It is not painless. Communicating with them is difficult and anything you can do to make it easier so that they can help you um, is worthwhile. And as he says, if you sign up for a WebEx account, uh, maybe you'll be able to get something you know, get better communication with the tech. It's an interesting tip. Yeah, he said it's 10x better than having to go back and forth via email uh, or having to get on a call or do 20 back, you know, 20 back and forth. Yeah, it's a shame. So yeah, if you're interested, check it out. Companies that run around saying, we're absolutely focused on the customer. But as long as you're only using the tools and things that we tell you to use and it's our own product, you know, and you'd say, I'd like to use Slack. And they'll go like, no, you can't use Slack. (laughs) So not so much customer service. So... We'll we'll mark this down as half a loaf is better than none, I suppose. Tip, pro tip, but not actually, you know, not necessarily an A plus for Cisco. Yes. Uh, So if you've got corrections, comments, uh, anything you want to follow up with us, hit us up at packapushers.net slash FU. The FU is for follow up.
All right, let's get into the news. Extreme Networks is going to acquire SD-WAN vendor Ipanema for $73 million in cash. Ipanema is a subsidiary of InfoVista. The cloud-managed SD-WAN is going to be rolled into Extreme Cloud Portfolio. Yeah, so one of the la- another one of the SD-WAN companies gets acquired. Uh, the remaining fish in the pool will be somewhat disappointed, but at $73 million, not exactly a, uh, a, a deal to be proud of. This feels to me at that sort of money like um, InfoVista thought they were going to do something with SD-WAN. You go onto their website and they're very big on emphasizing their 5G. They're very keen to sell their uh, 5G features. They've been acquiring companies in the 5G space. Like just recently, they acquired a company called Emperex, which extends 5G network lifecycle automation. And and it feels to me like InfoVista has gone, yeah, we thought we were going to get into the WAN, but the 5G is really where we want to be. Where can we send this to so we don't, you know, and extreme? And of course, we know that Extreme has picked up any number of, uh, let's say, distressed assets, shall we say? Brocade, Avaya. I think that's a nice yeah. way to put it, yes. And uh, I, this to me feels like Extreme's managed to pick up another customer base um, and, and, and a distressed asset at very reasonable values. Cash, $73 million. Effectively, that's not much at all. Um, but I would also note Extreme doesn't have a WAN strategy. So they don't have right. WAN routers. They don't do MPLS routers. So this is the natural gap in their portfolio. If you've got Wi-Fi and you've got data center and campus switches and where's the bit in the middle and up until now they've sort of had a bit of a hodgepodge sort of a thing. They've got a, a sort of an odd OEM'd box called their cloud managed small to mid enterprise. To me, it looks like they've OEM'd someone's product and bodged it up. Uh, AeroHive, yep. So they're using AeroHive's SD branch type capability. This feels much more in the vein of an SD-WAN, a true SD-WAN product, not something that's kind of like, uh, we're doing some load balancing at the IP layer. Across yeah, two layers, at, yeah. at IP layer. Right. But this right. is that's not what SD-WAN yeah. is, yeah. Right. Yeah, so I didn't really know much about Ipanema. It doesn't come up on our radar very much. So I reached out to Extreme to find out. They said Ipanema has more than 400 customers, primarily in Europe. So maybe that's why it doesn't cross our radar. Um, And presence in industries, including banking, retail, logistics, manufacturing. Uh, I agree. $73 million is a steal to get into SD-WAN. Last year, HPE paid $925 million for Silver Peak and Juniper paid $450 million for 128 technology. So for Extreme to plug that, uh, you know, product hole for $73 million, that's a good. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, and InfoVista is a European company, so they're a French company, and Ipanema was a European SD-WAN company. I don't actually remember if they were French as well or not, um, and that matters because French companies tend to hang together. They tend to stay together because they often get uh, support from the French government to stay local, uh, one of those things. But I think mm-hmm. this is good for Extreme in a way. They don't have a compelling WAN product today except for what they get from the Aruba, and that's kind of like when you've got a Wi-Fi, you need a they're branch, alive. and you kind of have to... Yeah, right. Yeah, sort of cobbled together a semi SDWAN. Now they've got the the full thing. Uh, I also wonder. They say it's going to be a slightly accretive to revenue and gross margin in 2022 fiscal year, so they'll be sort of coming into profits from uh, Ipanema out of the gate, which is great. And I think there's probably space in the market for, you know, maybe a lower cost uh, option compared to the Cisco's, the VMware's, the Palo Alto's of the world. Yeah, and that is where Extreme Networks does very well. It appeals to the governments, to the educational sector who are very price sensitive and also not particularly in for the features. You know, they don't want the upsell. They want a very simple product that does a very simple thing uh, most of the time. 
there's a trade-off there most of the time. And Extreme does well in that market. So a simple, straightforward product, and this could be accretive to them because they can go straight to their existing customer base and say, you know those WAN networks you've got? Why don't you just buy us? You've already got our Wi-Fi. You've already got our campus. You've already got our data center. Exactly. Now we can give you an SD-WAN strategy. That seems to me like a solid strategy. Right, and it's all cloud managed, which is tying into Extreme's overall um, strategy going forward of putting everything yeah, in Yeah, well, it's good for shareholders. Shareholders want it. They want to see the subscription revenue. <laughs> they want to see the cloud and, and you know, all that sort of stuff. And so that's where it's heading. Yeah. Well, congrats to Extreme and Ipanema. Uh, moving on, the Del Oro Group is forecasting a flood of government and education spending in the wireless land market. It's going to offset lower spending from the enterprise. Del Oro predicts $40 billion in worldwide spending over the next five years for wireless lands. Doubtful. Don't I? I mean, the idea that, I mean, yes, there's a lot of pent-up demand for upgrading Wi-Fi networks. I'm not. I'm not convinced that that sort of number is realistic. Delora does have a habit of bloviating from time to time, Drew, don't they? I feel like it's hard to tell because we don't we don't have access yeah. to the materials they do. So I think you know it jumped out at me because I thought you know my take is that I don't see a lot of enterprise spending happening in Wyland because of the whole people aren't going to be coming back to the office for a while, but they're saying uh, that governments are going to be spending money, including in the education sector, and that's going to help offset the money that the enterprise isn't spending. And I could see that because we are seeing, particularly here in the United States, um, trillions of dollars being proposed in stimulus, uh, in, including for infrastructure issues like broadband. And Delora saying that kind of infrastructure and stimulus spending will have a pull-through effect on the wireless land market. I could imagine that the shift away from fixed wireless, fixed Ethan wired networking. So the idea that desktops used to be wired into switches and now you're moving mm-hmm. more to laptops and mobile and people need dynamic floor plans. So they need to halve the number and you don't want to keep recabling all the time to do this. So maybe this, right. there's something in that argument, do you think? I could see, you know, universities, K through 12 schools, uh, getting a chunk of stimulus spending from the government and thinking we need a robust uh, network. So why not upgrade the wireless we were already using? Um, you know, maybe we need to be more flexible in how we're moving kids around, but keeping them connected in the schools yeah. because of COVID mm-hmm. issues. Maybe this is the time to upgrade. So, I, I, you know, I could see that. Again, my take for the enterprise is if you've are, particularly if you've already bought into .11ax, you're not going to spend, you know, t- tear that out just for 6E, but, um, you know, schools and, and government agencies maybe will want to take that money and spend it. And Wyland is one of the places they may yeah, do it. Yeah. I, I, my sense would be is that you're going to do it, but whether you're going to upgrade to Wi-Fi 6E, a lot of that product isn't available for another 12 months to two years. The chipsets around it are in very short supply. I think that Wi-Fi ASICs are not as profitable as other types of silicon, perhaps, shall we say? And so mm-hmm. if I was a manufacturer looking at, I've got X amount of capacity on the fab, what would I be ordering? And the answer might be data center switches or something instead of, you know, Wi-Fi edge devices that <laughs> sell for a couple hundred bucks each sort of thing. That's right. So I, I do right. feel that, you know, Wi-Fi 6E is not a compelling upgrade. It's one of those things where, you know, we've said this before, Yes, it's great. Yes, it's fine. There's new, new whatever, and the technology is better. New spectrum. But it's yeah. not, right. it's like getting, uh, you know, the difference between an Apple iPhone 12 and an Apple iPhone 12S. If you're buying one anyway, get the latest, but otherwise, you know, stick with it for another year or two. 
Yeah, so Aruba and Extreme have both announced Wi-Fi 6E's uh, APs that are expected to start shipping in the fall. But of course, we know supply constraints uh, may hamper widespread availability. So, yeah, I, I thought it was curious that Deloro is so bullish. Yeah. I, you know, maybe they know something we don't, but I, I agree that I feel like I'm, I'm suspicious. Yeah, well, I think the article does call out the fact that, you know, Germany has allocated 6.6 .6 billion euro. Japan's allocated $4.4 billion dollars. The U.S. has allocated $4.3 billion. These are to rural, uh, to educational programs, to upgrade schools and education right. institutions. If that sort of money does flow into right. the, you know, trickle down into the IT infrastructure, that actually uh, <laughs> moves the needle, right? <laughs> you know, a billion here, a billion there, but it doesn't make $40 billion. That's the bit I can't see. Well, it's over five years, so I guess if you spread it out, maybe, uh, maybe mm, that could happen. I guess, yeah. Yeah, and if in a couple of years the enterprise gets back to spending, we'll see. Anyway, Delores put down a marker, and we'll keep an eye on it and see uh, if yep. it comes through. All right, a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Nokia. Did you know that Nokia has over 1.1 million routers deployed and power some of the largest interconnection networks, including Equinix and DECIX? Recently, Nokia launched its data center fabric solution, building on over 20 years of IP know-how and expertise. The new DC fabric solution includes SR Linux. This is a new, open, extensible, resilient network OS. It's based on standard Linux and uses Nokia's field-proven protocol stacks with best-in-class streaming telemetry. There's also interconnect routers. This is a portfolio of Leaf, Spine, and SuperSpine platforms based on Merchant Silicon, and the Fabric Services platform, a declarative intent-based automation and operations toolkit for day zero, day one, and day two operations. Fabric Services Platform uses Kubernetes and distributed microservices approach, so you get a true cloud-native automation and operations platform. There are certified design templates and a digital sandbox. You can create a true emulation of your data center fabric. Operators can automate their data center networks at scale, speed, and with confidence. You can find out more at nokia.com slash networks slash DC dash fabric. That's nokia.com slash networks slash DC dash fabric. We've also done a couple of sponsored heavy networkings with them. If you want to search on packetpushers.net, if you want more info on how all that works. All right, back to the news. Huawei revenues dropped 29% in the company's Q2 2021 financial results. The biggest drop was in its consumer device division, where revenues fell 47%. Uh, the company still had total revenues of 49.5 billion US. So just to put that in scale, that's the same sort of revenue as Cisco. So Huawei is still as big as Cisco. So by no means a small company compared to other IT vendors that we talk here. Um, in my view, what we're seeing is that the sanctions are really starting to impact Huawei's business. The thing to, that I feel is worth noting here for networking architects or networking strategies is just how long it took for the trade sanctions to show up in Huawei's business results. And that is uh, the, the US government put trade sanctions in place, I want to say three years ago, Drew, and then got tighter and tighter. Yeah, that's and right. then the company sort yeah. of fought back and said, we don't want to lose this money and, you know, whatever. And... Um, and it just sort of went on and on, and now it's sort of started to flow through. It's taken that long. And the thing here is to say that it just takes this long for trade sanctions to have an impact. You can't just turn them on and all of a sudden it stops. There's existing contracts that have to flow out, restrictions. And the reason that I, I raised this issue was that if you see sanctions come up, if you see political sanctions come up and you're trying to judge how they affect your IT strategy, this might be a useful in 
experience to reflect on and understand how it can impact your pipelines. So this is part of the the supply chain problems is that there was a lot of disruptions to vendors caused by, you know, previously they were selling stuff to Chinese companies and that was broken by the trade sanctions that caused one disruption. And then there were shortages on the fabs. And that is in part due to the fact that they had to re-architect their demand curves and go back to the fabs and say, well, we want to change what, and that caused a number of disruptions as well. So there's multiple factors here. Yeah, but to give you some numbers on how that um, the sanctions hampered uh, Huawei's access to critical components, the company shipped 6.4 million handsets for Q2 2021. That's compared to 27 million for the same quarter last year. So a dramatic drop in their ability to sell devices to consumers. Uh, I will say Huawei is still doing very well in IT and telecom. Revenues for its enterprise business unit grew 18%. They also saw growth in cloud services businesses. So uh, they're getting uh, having a hard time on the consumer side, but on the uh, IT and telecom side, they're still doing fine. I think the angle here is Eric Zhu, who is Huawei's current rotating chairman, they have two and they rotate turnabout. And he says, we've set our strategic goals for the next five years. Our aim is to survive and to do so sustainably. Obviously, a 30% reduction in revenue would... Uh, be quite damaging to most companies. I believe Huawei is probably well set. And it's also worth noting that Huawei was one of two companies in China that were very export focused. The other one was ZTE and Huawei was the other one and they were trying to get into the telco markets. And being excluded from the European and the North American market means that they're left with Africa and South America and a few other locations. And Obviously, the drop was would have been well understood. It's not like this would have been a surprise. They would have seen it coming three years ago. Um, but I think while we will do fine, there's plenty of domestic demand in China and they'll be still, they just need to pivot back to selling uh, in countries where they have the ability to sell and, and hope that the political situation changes in the future and they can come back and compete in the open market perhaps. All right, moving on, just a reminder that GitHub has officially phased out the use of account passwords to authenticate Git operations. The deadline was Friday, August 13th, 2021. Token-based authentication is now required, and GitHub initially announced the change back in July of 2020 to give folks time to prepare. This is just an informational. (laughs) If you've been uploading stuff to GitHub or, you know, getting stuff from GitHub, just using password authentication, I I suspect you've been getting emails to say your time is up, your time is up. But in case you've been ignored, and if after today, by the time you listen to this, you suddenly find that uh, you're not able to authenticate for GitHub operations, the reason is that you now have to go to two-factor authentication and or token-based authentication, which means you you need to maybe update your scripts. So if you're using a script to do stuff that you've just been working, all of a sudden you might find it's not going forward from here. Links in the show notes on what you need to do. Yeah, uh, GitHub wrote a couple of blogs that make it very clear on what you need to do. Uh, so you may be in for a surprise if you haven't done GitHub in mm-hmm. a while, but that's what's happening now. All right, our last story for the day, SpaceX. They've acquired a satellite startup called Swarm for an undisclosed amount. Swarm makes notebook-sized satellites that provide connectivity for ground-based IoT devices. They're targeting use cases like agriculture, maritime, and the energy sector for sensors and other devices and locations without widely available connectivity. Yeah, so this is our ongoing series of space networking as we discover what the future of space networking is going to look like, and it takes its turns and its its warps. In this case, SpaceX has acquired a company for um, that deploy not just micro satellites, but nano satellites. Just <laughs> get that, All right? Uh, these are actually just right. four hundred grams, so they're tiny, tiny, tiny. That's they're tiny. picosats, yeah. actually. Uh, and Swarm in their website talks about them being inexpensive to make and deploy. So Swarm can afford to sell a data service starting at $5 a month, quite cheap. Uh, and it's, right. and you get a mere 750 data packets per device per month at up to 192 bytes per packet. 
So <laughs> this is not a network as we know it, but it is a specific type of niche networking for a certain type of IoT device. And right, it's not it's not space broadband. This is a very limited yeah. use case. Or a very specific use a case. Very specific say. use case for very, you know, this would be the sort of thing where you want to track something and the only thing that it sends is a, is a tiny little 192-byte packet saying where I am, you know, like a, a, an Apple AirTag type thing. That's what I imagine this to be. This is a niche market. And I think this sort of signals the fact that Starlink um, is a key business for SpaceX. So SpaceX needs to diversify its revenue base to build a sustainable business. Its current dependence on US taxpayer money via NASA is not a good good business plan. Although NASA's got plenty of money and the US taxpayer loves its space program, it's not guaranteed. NASA can rescind its contracts. They're variable. They can be delayed. I saw, for example, this week the... Um, they're starting to talk about certain of the trips to the moon might be delayed past 2024 because they don't have a space suit. <laughs> Which you kind uh, of If need. you want to go to the moon and get outside and walk around, you need a space suit. And they're talking something like a billion dollars to invest, to spend, to build a, a space suit. And I don't think they forgot, but it's that bid tower process or that tendering process is running behind schedule. So if you're building a rocket to ship in 2024, you might find, you know, then all of a sudden that revenue doesn't turn up because spacesuits aren't revenue. That's a pretty tough thing for a private space company to handle. Right. So yeah, uh, SpaceX gets to diversify. It's got um, more targets, uh, more things it can launch into space to make some money that way. They also get control of F, uh, Swarm's FCC license for satellites and ground stations, which is, is mm -hmm. valuable uh, as we, you know, folks are going to be competing for a lot of this uh, space spectrum. So that is also good. I, I do note that Swarm had to pay a $900,000 fine for violating FCC rules after an unauthorized launch of its satellites. And I have to wonder if that sort of run and gun yeah. approach appealed to Elon Musk. And he was like, yeah, I can do business with these guys. <laughs> you think? Like, you know, move fast and break things sort of thing? Maybe so. <laughs> exactly. You got fined by the yeah. FCC? I like yeah. you. Let's <laughs> I've just got this vision that Swarm's sort of this technology that they can just say, ah, well, we've got a little bit of space left on this rocket. We'll just fit one of these things in there, you know, sort of thing. Right. And uh, yeah. it could turn into something. It feels like something like that. And it's got the potential to be a business unit in its own right, you know, tracking cars or parcels or something around the world. Who knows? But that type of idea. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So links in the show notes if you want to read up more about it. That does wrap up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with NetScout where we're talking about DDoS attacks and DDoS attack mitigation. That's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking DDoS mitigation. In particular, we're going to look at how stateful firewalls and other devices are vulnerable to DDoS due to TCP state exhaustion attacks. Our sponsor today is NetScout, and our guest is Roland Dobbins. He is a principal engineer at NetScout. He's going to walk us through how the attack works and what can be done to mitigate DDoS attacks that use this technique. Roland, welcome to the podcast, and let's dive right in. So what is it about stateful firewalls that make them vulnerable to DDoS? Sure. Thanks for having me here. DDoS attacks are actually attacks against capacity and or state. And so what do we mean by that? Very specifically, if there is a form of state, whether it's in a network infrastructure device, like a stateful firewall or a stateful load balancer, whether it's in an application stack, um, it is very easy for the attackers to programmatically exhaust that state. The asymmetry of resources in DDoS attacks is generally very, very heavily in favor of the attackers because they are using stolen resources, right? So it's essentially free for them. All they're spending is their time. And mm. so 
uh, they are often able to overwhelm the state tables in these devices. And how does that work? With a stateful firewall, when an incoming packet from, quote, the outside, unquote, hits that stateful firewall, the stateful firewall will then do a lookup in its state table to say, do I have an outbound connection that corresponds to this incoming packet? And if the answer is yes, then it, and then it allows that, that packet through. The answer is no, it drops it. The problem comes in when we put stateful firewalls where they don't belong. Stateful firewalls have a big, important role to play in front of eyeball networks, access networks where there are human beings uh, that are that are clients, essentially accessing servers. But in front of a server, in almost every kind of server you can think of, Every single incoming connection to that server is unsolicited. Therefore, there is no state to inspect. And so what we often see is that when stateful firewalls have suboptimally been placed in front of servers and there is no um, DDoS mitigation protection for those stateful firewalls themselves, the attackers are able to send enough traffic that causes enough continuous lookup churn uh, in the state table of those stateful firewalls and causes them to fall, uh, either either they program they try they crowd out the the yeah. legitimate traffic with with programmatically generated attack traffic or they cause a device to exhaust a CPU and fall over and that causes a big outage and that's really interesting now when we prepared for this year you told me this and you said that um, you find that a surprising number of engineers in the community are not aware that state exhaustion is a major trauma zone. Now, I'm going to admit that I've been working in applications layer of the network for 25 years, and it was one of the things I learned very, very early on. But I then went to Twitter when we talked about this and asked, and turns out it's actually a real thing. A lot of customers are not aware <laughs> that firewalls have a memory and it fills up with every with every flow that moves across the firewall. There's a state. There's that that state is recorded and then tracked. And with application firewalls, this is much uh, the load is much higher because the CPU is doing much more inspection. It has to hold a lot more data and metadata. Has to hold a threat table. Has to do the comparison. So if you're um, next generation firewall is under attack, under DDoS style attack, where it's doing application level. The load doesn't just increase, it exponentially increases and the device collapses and often collapses disastrously, right? That's exactly right. And the attackers know this. And so especially the more sophisticated attackers who perform pre-attack reconnaissance, they will identify stateful devices in the application and service delivery chain, like stateful firewalls, like load balancers and things of this nature. And so they'll attack it in such a way that, that, since that the synthetically generated attack traffic is crafted to maximally exhaust state. And so um, we see this in many cases where we get a call and we're, you know, help, help, the internet's down, the entire data center's down. And so you'll have an entire data center of servers performing various vital functions like, you know, authoritative DNS, recursive DNS, web servers, um, session border controllers, you name it. And the entire thing um, has been knocked over by these attacks. And it's a, it's, it's a physics problem. And it's not anything that has to do with a particular yeah. brand or manufacturer or model. It's just the, the fact is that these devices have limited capabilities and the biggest, baddest one when you can buy or build, attackers can uh, cause issues with it. And even if it has some special controls that mm. are designed to try to limit um, the ability of the attacker to knock it over, still the programmatically generated attack traffic will squeeze out the legitimate traffic and still cause an outage. 
And one of the key things here is that people will actually go and buy overspec firewalls to cope with that. They say like, well, I've got a, a hundred megs of internet or a gigabit or 10 gigabits of bandwidth, but I can easily be DDoS. So what I'll do is I'll go and buy a hundred gigabits of bandwidth. And now I have to buy a firewall, which does a hundred gigabits per second, but you might only be pulling two, three, four gigabits of traffic. So now all of a sudden you're paying for unwasted bandwidth that you probably don't ever use and firewall capacity, which is not cheap. And I think part of what you're saying here as part of the NetScout um, DDoS service is that you can actually save money by having a DDoS so that you don't over-specify your infrastructure. Well, that's very true. And of course, another aspect that is often not understood is about DDoS attacks are not just about bandwidth, they can be about throughput or packets per second, connections per second, transactions per second. And so in many cases, especially these state exhaustion attacks, the bits per second is not the important metric, it's the number of packets per second, and then then the the diversity of those packets in terms of yeah. source address, destination address, and all, all that kind of stuff. What we do at NetScout is we do a couple of different things. First of mm-hmm. all, we produce solutions that detect allow operators to detect, classify, trace back, and mitigate DDoS attacks. And we make them for the enterprise as well as for service providers. Uh, And we actually have a hybrid approach where an enterprise can deploy an intelligent DDoS mitigation system like our AED on their premise. They can Mm. configure it and uh, they can can, um, enable the, the countermeasures that are situationally appropriate to protect the types of servers that they have. And then they can link that. They can contract for a commercial DDoS mitigation service that is also powered uh, by NetScout solutions, and those solutions can talk to each other. And so the benefit here is that if they have moves, ads, and changes, they can keep their local mitigation uh, system up to date. They can have uh, always-on mitigation, so when they receive an attack, it is instantly mitigated uh, by the on-premise AED device. And if the levels of DDoS attack traffic rise uh, above what can can, can be supported by the link, the AED will actually signal upstream to its its uh, big siblings uh, right. in the in the cloud-based or upstream DDoS mitigation service, which will then take over and carry that heavier load. So what you're doing there is you've actually got a split DDoS mitigation strategy or a dual approach, if you want to use sort of different words. So you can have an on-premise unit, which sits in front of your boxes and that's inside of your domain of control and you can do whatever. And then you've got the, tr- the more traditional approach where somewhere in the network, in the internet, you, uh, right. you have a bunch of infrastructure which can filter upstream so that should you get to the point where you're getting a mass, like a massive denial of service attack, you can actually mitigate it in the network so that your pipe doesn't get swamped. But if you're getting an application level attack, which is a different type of DDoS, right? Then you probably want to do that on-prem where you can tailor the response much more tightly. Well, you can tell it a response tightly in either situation, but yes, that hi- mm-hmm. that that hybrid model is the model that that our customers tend to go for because they want to have that control, and of course, they're going to have more knowledge of their applications and things like connections per second, transactions per second, you know, extranet partners that they routinely exchange data with versus their general customer base, uh, and and those different types types of, of properties. The the layer seven mitigation, application layer mitigation, can take place in the cloud as well. But you're exactly right in that. The mm-hmm. 
thinking is that having local autonomy, local control there is great. And it also gives them the choice of mitigation service provider because uh, we at Nescout have been in the DDoS mitigation business for 20 years. We have been in this business longer than any other company in the space. We're the leaders in the space. Um, mm -hmm. We invented the concept of commercial DDoS mitigation services. And most of the high profile commercial DDoS mitigation services in the world are powered with our technology. And bringing this back to the state issue, our countermeasures, our protections are designed explicitly either to be completely stateless in nature, or if they do need to carry uh, a small amount of state in order to do things like, for example, determine if a client candidate is a real client versus a bot, they carry a small amount of state, ephemeral state, and they shed that state very quickly. So the solution itself, number one, cannot be overwhelmed from a state perspective. And number two, if there are things like stateful firewalls or stateful load balancers devices that are engineered into the yeah. in, in customer infrastructure, we can protect those devices just as we'll protect servers themselves. So what you're alluding to there is it's not just firewalls that can run out of state exhaustion, it's also load balancers, IDSs, IPSs. So if you can overload your threat detection solution and your threat visibility tools, then you might be able to sneak something in the back door. So it becomes a security issue as well. Um, That's and exactly second, right. And I can yeah. give you an example of that if you would like. Yeah, sure. um, yeah, yeah. So I've been able to take uh, an application layer. Uh, this is not actually a bot. It's a DDoS generation tool called HOIC, H-O-I-C. And I was able to use it to overwhelm a 10 gig uh, hardware-based load balancer. And it didn't take me 600 million packets per second to do that. It didn't take me 60 million packets per second. It didn't take 6 million packets per second. It didn't take 600,000 packets per second. It didn't take 60,000 packets per second. It only took me 6,000 packets per second of Hoik to overwhelm the state table in that mm -hmm. very expensive commercial load balancer and send it into a 45-minute reboot cycle. Now, just so the listeners are, understand the context here, I can generate more than 6,000 packets per second with my smartwatch. <laughs> yeah. Well, the second thing that I want to highlight to people here is that DDoS attacks can are partly about packets per second, but they're also about flows per second. So they can actually be an attack at, at the UDP layer or the TCP layer. You can have a flood attack at the IP layer. But these days, it's much more common to have a layer seven attack where you do, say, for example, open up 10,000 HTTP flows. And you can open up almost an unlimited number of HTTP sessions with a server through a firewall with just a very few packets. Uh, look at the DNS reflection attacks, for example. That And that is something right. that, you know, if you're not thinking about those sorts of things, you're probably going to find out the hard way at some point in the future. <laughs> That's right. That, that's part of that's part of capacity engineering and resilience. And so it's very important that whenever an organization has public facing properties that are vital to its business, to its mission, and, and what organization doesn't have those things like VPN concentrators, for example, you know, you, you name it, right? Um, they have to be engineered in such a way that they are in and of themselves are resilient. If they have self-protection mechanisms, those need to be enabled. And then they have to be protected by solutions that are specifically engineered engineered to, to protect them against the type of DDoS attack traffic that you're talking about. Because again, those sophisticated attackers know how to generate attack traffic that is designed to, to overwhelm the, the natural capacities and the, the actual um, traffic model and, uh, and capacities that these devices um, typically are, are designed and configured and deployed with. And so that's why it's really important, number one, to have complete visibility 
competing edge to edge and all the traffic that's ingressing, egressing, and traversing your network. And number two, understand the all the characteristics of the things that you are protecting, uh, because that is the metier um, of of DDoS uh, mitigation or DDoS defense is understanding what you're protecting and then configuring your mitigation system and your countermeasures and protections in a situationally appropriate way so that they, they are optimized to protect those servers and services and applications mm-hmm. and the ancillary supporting infrastructure. So I want to make sure I understand how your device, the AD device that sits uh, in front of my infrastructure and is intercepting mm-hmm. uh, this traffic uh, doesn't isn't also susceptible to stateful attacks because I assume it has to do some kind of analysis or inspection or make a decision about each packet coming in. And how does, so how does it do that without being susceptible to a stateful resource exhaustion? Right. So the device itself, the AED in scale, we have capacities all the way in the hundreds of gigabits per second. Uh, it's a layer two device that is typically deployed just southbound of the internet transit router, the router that links to the upstream internet providers and, and then northbound of, of the rest of the, the, you know, the servers and load balancers and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature. And so, first of all, the device uh, reports and, and tabulates on traffic that's passing through it inbound and outbound. Secondly, again, um, what, what we do is we take a look at the servers and services and applications that are being protected. And we have different types of countermeasures. Many of them are stateless. Uh, as I noted, some of them are metered countermeasures, things like packets per second, connections per second, requests per second, things of that nature. And some of them are interactive, where again, the system will, will interact um, with a given um, uh, client candidate, a source to determine if it appears to be illegitimate or or not. And so some of those countermeasures are actually um, mm-hmm. designed in, in, a, in an allow mode where they will specifically allow sources that pass the test, but otherwise they're just not going to allow anything through. Uh, and that also, because those countermeasures are specifically crafted to protect the different types of servers, services and, and applications on those servers, the different countermeasures are not lo- looking, each countermeasure is not looking at every single packet. They're looking at the pertinent packets. Now, as a hmm. whole, we absolutely do inspect and 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 provide for, you know, uh, forwarding or drop decisions for individual packets. We also, when we identify sources that are misbehaving, we will then, we have the options to drop all packets from those sources um, um, for the duration of the attack, you know, for forever or for a certain period of time. And so these are different mechanisms that we've employed to ensure that we don't carry a lot of state. The state that we carry is very brief, like when we make an, you know, an evaluation decision uh, about a given source, and then we move on uh, to, to all the other. And so we've never had an instance in which our devices have been overwhelmed. And in fact, we have um, a, a great track record of protecting stateful devices that can be overwhelmed uh, by these types of attacks with our solution. Well, we're running out of time, uh, but th- th- there could be so much more to this discussion. Is there anything you want to leave us with, Roland, uh, as we wrap up? Sure. Organizations need to understand that uh, any organization can, in fact, be targeted by DDoS attacks, either directly or indirectly as a form of collateral uh, collateral impact. And so it's very important that when we take a look at security, that we we obviously should pay attention to confidentiality and integrity. And we also must pay attention to availability. It has to be paramount um, in in nature. And so Mm -hmm. when we're designing the applications and the services and the delivery infrastructure, 
infrastructure. We have to design them with state minimization in mind. And then we have to ensure that DDoS mitigation solutions are deployed, which can protect against all different types of DDoS attacks, including state exhaustion DDoS attacks. Fantastic. And if you want to find out more about the product Roland had talked about, you can go to netscout.com slash protect firewall. That's netscout.com slash protect firewall. Uh, that is the end of our time. Thank you, Roland, for joining us. And thanks to NetScout for being a sponsor. And as always, thanks to you for being a listener. And you can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, always remember that too much networking would never be enough.